Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, through a carefully crafted process of artificial selection, we have created an episode that has all the traits we want it to in order to do what we want it to do. So it's time to talk about animal domestication. Hmm contrived. Uh, but yes, as longtime listeners might have guessed, and newer listeners will find out almost immediately, I, Dr. Animal Bone Science Person, will be your guide through this your episode. your full name? Yeah. Animal, Dr. Bone, Animal Bone Science, Science Person. Yeah, that's what Goldman. Anna is short for. Yeah, okay, good. Goldman. Did I say Goldman? <laughs> you did. It's not your name. <laughs> that's fine. You can just, they're interchangeable. <laughs> <laughs> Nice to meet you. Yeah. It's not just going to be your standard domestication 101. I'll cover the basics, but then I've also... Domestication 002, like the remedial one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. No, I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page before we sort of branch out. So in addition to the basics, I've also collected some fun examples of unusual domesticates and animal co-workers, which is animals that aren't really domesticated but humans use them work with them wait is that what they're called no i'm calling them co-workers oh, oh i thought that okay no 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 no. that would be very sweet if that were like I don't, the official no. term that would be um no. no i i don't know that there's a specific term for like a whole category of that but yeah. i like animal co-workers um, and then finally, just at the very end, just as a quick little thought experiment, we're going to oh. hit the big question. Have we humans domesticated ourselves? Stick around for that, I guess. First of all, Amber, can you tell me what you know? So I can so I can level set what you know about domestication basics. What is animal domestication and what are why would we want this? <laughs> why? What are some benefits of it? OK, so animal domestication involves selective breeding but selective breeding so the animals are easier to deal with so we make them like smaller and dumber and fatter and also they can't necessarily like domesticated animals can't necessarily live on their own uh -huh. like, like now like currently domesticated ones like <laughs> if you like yeah. if you liberate them they they're going to be like Where's dinner? Um, and so the benefits are these are things that these make the animals are less likely to harm us in the process <laughs> of us getting the things we want out yeah. of them. And they're so um, smaller and dumber. That's and, why. And also um, it's a way to, well, they, they can be used like for labor and they can also be mm -hmm. used for resources. And it's a way to have like a greater sense of sort of security, like food and, and 
pulling thing security. Um, pulling thing security. Yep. Yeah. So far. Great. Okay. Nailed good. It. Good. Uh, there, there are like in general, that is sort of the basic picture of domestication. There are going to be exceptions to that. Things don't always get smaller and dumber. Sometimes they get bigger and dumber, but in general, I did say fatter. Is, so like some yes. like things like to, meatier, like that sort of, mm-hmm. that's what mm-hmm. I, yeah, mean, if I think by like, yeah, like less, less killy wild. Yeah. Killy, less killy. That's, yes. That's, that is a theme throughout. Definitely. Okay. Um, so yeah, like you said, husbandry or mm-hmm. domestication is involves the deliberate choices of which animals mate and when, and that's determined by the the currency that you want to make the most of. So if you, as someone who is raising cattle, want to mm-hmm. raise them for their milk, then you will breed them to to be better milkers, not necessarily bigger or smaller, just like the the, the milk production that they. Okay that they have so you'll like select the best cows and then you know have those birth more cows that's how that that works but this is something that has been going on for thousands of years humans didn't need to know about genetics to gradually figure out how artificial selection works at some point estimates range but around ten thousand years ago maybe if a couple thousand years before that uh, we see sort of the a real rise in domesticated versus hunted species um, in parts of the world. So we're going to hit so some of those. Yes. We never. Did we hunt animals for their milk? I don't. I think, I think we discovered milk, animal milk sort of concurrently with. Well, but I mean, like we make milk. No, I know. And that's like, what I mean. Like, so, like alternative sort of, milk. But. Oat milk. <laughs> yes, that's that's why oats were domesticated so that we can mm-hmm. have oatly. So we can milk them. Um, no, 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 no. I'm saying like because I'm thinking about like secondary so like, products and that yeah, sort of hunting stuff. for like, secondary. Could we get um, well. Let me just clarify. So secondary products are something that you get from an animal while it's still alive. So if we're talking about cows, sheep, etc., you can get milk or uh, wool from sheep. You can get yeah, um, eggs from chickens. Cow wool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, bison. Bison or woolly. Um, yeah, so those are sheared? those are secondary products. Bison? No, they shed naturally. Um, no, I just <laughs> want to see like if... You could do wool like from them. And if that's something I, you that, could, like, so, that you wouldn't need, like that would be something that you could do from a wild animal if they are like scratching it off on trees and stuff. They do. Yeah. And um, so that's one of the things. So okay. like sheep, wild sheep will yeah. lose to like when it's time for them to go from <laughs> their winter look to their summer look. Yeah. Um, they will like lose patches of, oh, so of they their don't just wool get, on like, the foliage. They don't just keep growing until they just like, No, that's away. that's something that happened with domestication. So, <sighs> so wild or, wild so sheep okay. lost so we, the ability to to shed naturally because we shear them. They don't need that. So that's so, why that little that little guy That's that, why like, when that one off. sheep escaped, he turned into a perfect sphere. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason that only a certain number of sort of primary species are domesticated today because statistically most animals on this planet aren't great candidates for domestication. So there because are criteria. Like if we're going by like, <laughs> by bio Oh, you mass. wait till the second half of this no. episode. <laughs> no. So 
There are criteria that make species good candidates. These aren't sort of rules okay. because obviously there's going to be variation. But Amber, tell me about the criteria for domestication and what makes a good domesticate. Okay, so I'm going to quote from National Geographic, who does know. Um, quoting, quote, Animal domestication falls into three main groupings. Domestication for companionship, like dogs and cats. Um, animals farmed for food, sheep, cow, pigs, turkeys, etc. And working or draft animals, uh, horses, donkeys, camels. Those are the ones that give you... Camelids, yeah. Pulling things. Mm-hmm. Security. Um, continuing with the quote. Animals that make good candidates for domestication typically share certain traits. They grow and mature quickly, making them efficient to farm. They breed easily in captivity and can undergo multiple periods of fertility in a single year. They eat plant-based diets, which makes them inexpensive to feed. Well, clearly not. Less expensive. Clearly not feeding them impossible burgers. (laughs) That's not the kind of plant. They don't need burgers. They don't need like... <laughs> they're, they're not They're not vegan. They're not vegan. No. I mean... Um, they're hardy yeah, and easily adapt to changing conditions. They live in herds or who had or had ancestors that lived in herds, making them easy for humans to control. End quote. Yeah. So like if you think of most like horses, sheep, cows, they're animals that prefer to be with um, other peers. They prefer to be with their peers. I know. They sure do. Yeah, little gregarious um, creatures. Yeah. So the obvious exception to the whole like plant-based diet thing is dogs. Um, so we talked about the story of dog domestication way back in episode 12, which yeah, like, right? I was a different How? person then, so I don't remember it. Um, but there are some pieces of the story that we didn't cover. So let us revisit the goodest boys and girls so briefly. Mm-hmm. Dogs. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I had to scroll. Dogs were domesticated by at least 20,000 years ago, according to a 2021 paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So, like, this but wasn't us. even out when we did yeah. episode 12. We can't be faulted for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this was by Angela Perry, who is a very prolific publisher on ancient dog research. So, uh, Over the last 10,000 years, the genetic signatures of ancient dog remains have been linked with known human dispersals in regions such as the Arctic and the remote Pacific. It is suspected, however, that this relationship has a much deeper antiquity and that the tandem movement of people and dogs may have begun soon after the domestication of the dog from a gray wolf ancestor in the late Pleistocene. Here, by comparing the population genetic results of humans and dogs from Siberia, Beringia, and North America, we show that there is a close correlation in the movement and divergences of their respective lineages. This evidence places constraints on when and where dog domestication took place. Most significantly, it suggests that dogs were domesticated in Siberia by about 23,000 years ago, possibly while both people and wolves were isolated during the harsh climate of the last glacial maximum. Dogs then accompanied the first people into the Americas and traveled with them as humans rapidly dispersed into the continent beginning about 15,000 years ago. End quote. Yeah, you've got potentially a time when human populations and wolf populations were sort of stranded 
at least in terms of their genetics, they weren't sort of mixing with other populations. And so at some point there was a wolf who wasn't as afraid or as wary of humans and was like, your food smells great. And I guess we went from there. But yeah, the patterns of dispersal seems to match human patterns of dispersal, dispersal, which is this great dogs, dogs. So if people and their dogs got to the Americas by 15,000 years ago, um, then it shouldn't be too surprising that the oldest known dog burial in the Americas dates to around 10,000 years ago. Um, so, you know, known. They could have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are before. earlier remains. Yeah. yeah. So um, this burial is of three dogs in what is today uh, Coaster, Coaster, Coaster. Illinois. Yeah, it's right above Table, Illinois. Good. And it's under Glass, Illinois. Just had to take that to mm-hmm. its logic. How'd that feel? Took it to its logical conclusion. I'm satisfied. That was great. <laughs> so these dog skeletons have no traces of cut marks, so they were not killed for food. These dogs were not butchered. Uh, one of the three dogs was closely related to wolves, based on evidence from the tooth and jaw shape, while another was closely related to coyotes. So had had so, coyote ancestry, you know, yeah. recently. Bart, throughout dog domestication, breeding with wild relatives was restricted. If you look at ancient doggy genomes, there is gene flow from dogs to wolves. So dogs going out and partying with wolves, um, uh, but not the other way around. This might be for a couple of reasons. First, wild canids seem, tend to be fearful or at least very wary of people. Um, and the likelihood of a wild wolf approaching a human encampment is far less than that of a domesticated dog exploring his wild side. Uh, on the flip side of that coin is the relationship humans have with dogs. So we live much more closely with them and the behaviors we want in dogs are much more restricted. If the dog breeds with a wolf, the pups might have some wolfy tendencies like being more fearful of people and less docile. Super quickly, let's run through some times and places for some of the farmiest farm animals. So <laughs> like we got horses. <sighs> mm-hmm. Horses have been interbred, traded between populations of people and moved across continents because that's kind of their whole thing, transport and labor. So this makes their genetic story pretty tangled and hard to trace. But not only that, the wild ancestor of horses, Equus ferris, is extinct. So that has complicated researchers' efforts to compare the genetics of domestic animals with wild ones because the only wild ones available are in like fossil or skeletal form. Previous research nailed down a broad area for domestication, the Eurasian steppe. It's very big. Hungary oh. and Romania through Mongolia. So like yeah. that whole area. Mm-hmm. So that's that was the first pass at like, well, they were probably domesticated in this really big region. Biologist Vera Warmuth took things a step, a Eurasian step further. Nice. She studied, thank you, she studied sequences of horse DNA inherited from both parents and known to be diverse between horse populations. So Warmuth and colleagues collected genetic samples from more than 300 horses at 12 different sites across the steppe. And there were some really important limitations on this. So data were collected for working animals, bred within a local area. So not animals that were bred for show or appearance because that would minimize the sort of human element of, of selection that would make some genes more common. So if you're breeding a horse for show, you want it to have certain traits that deviate further from the wild horse. 
Then the researchers used computer programs to model population spread and figure out the most likely scenario for a starting location that would lead to something resembling the modern genetic diversity among horses today. So they basically said, here is genetic diversity today. Here is how long we assume, you know, based on what we know about how genetic, how long genetic mutations take to sort of take hold in a population. Yeah. They sort of worked that back to figure out where and when would create the pattern of horse dispersal that we see today. So basically they use computer modeling to do a best fit analysis. But it's strictly, it's not looking at archaeological remains. It's strictly looking at genetics. And so the result of that, of that genetic modeling is that horses were probably first domesticated around 6,000 years ago in the Western part of the steppe, which is modern day Ukraine and Kazakhstan. A lot of these examples that I'm I'm going to provide for the very farmy farm animals, a lot of this is DNA based evidence, just okay. to sort of give you that. Versus um, what? Versus like morphology. Versus oh, I was just like no <laughs> interviewing cows. No, like fossil comparisons. Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. That's a fair question. <laughs> cows were not available for comment. Cowment. Cowment. Again, the primary evidence here comes from DNA. So in 2012, an international team sampled the DNA from cow bones excavated, so these are archaeological, at Iranian archaeological sites that date to around 10,500 years ago. People in this area of the world were some of the earliest to domesticate bovids. That does include sheep and goats. Wait, they're bovids too? They are. What? I always I always forget. Like antelopes are bovids, but not deer. Deer are cervids. Cervids, I know. yeah. As I was writing this, I like yelled across to Naomi, like, sheep or bovids, right? Thank you. (laughs) So the team examined how small differences between the DNA sequences of those ancient cattle from 10,500 years ago and cattle living today could have arisen given different population histories. So in this case, unlike the horse study, they sort of had the the ancient end of things Mm -hmm. genetically and they had the modern end of genetic diversity. And so they tried to figure out, first of all, what population size could have yielded this amount of cattle genetic diversity in this area, and then how how far back it would have happened. So was it earlier than 10,500 years ago? Um, so using computer simulations, just like in the horse study, they found that the DNA differences they had observed could only have happened if just a small number of animals were domesticated from wild oxen, which are aurochs. And that number was probably somewhere around 80. So the original population of, of wild oxen that at some point became managed by humans was yeah. quite small. So which is maybe, maybe it happened multiple times. I'm that's not sure. Those but like, that seems like something that if all you need to get is about 80, which I mean, you're still it's like all, this, they're really than, big than and scary. Yeah. But say like, that seems like something that over the course of thousands of years and yeah, you'd like probably get there of, millions of lives. Like people mm-hmm. have probably figured it out. Okay. Other bovids, <laughs> sheep goat. So I have not distinguished them here because they're so, so very similar that even in the archaeological record, it's very different, difficult they're to just, tell them apart. They're just so. wearing different clothes. They're just in different coats. Yeah. So like I said a few minutes ago, sheep and goats were probably first domesticated in Western Asia. And so here's a case study of a site that gives us some of the earliest evidence for that process. And this is from an article in Science Magazine. Quote, the site of Ashiklihuyuk 
is located on the banks of the Melindes River in central Turkey, a land of idyllic streams and dramatic volcanic formations popular with tourists. Wow. Setting the scene. Yeah. Earlier work had suggested that Ashiklehoyuk might be a center of the earliest stages of animal domestication. The team looked at an archaeological layer radiocarbon dated to between 10,400 and 10,100 years ago. It's a you know, pretty short span of time. The botanical remains from this level show intensive cultivation of cereals, Reese's Puffs, mm-hmm. and Quaker Oats, lentils, and nuts, meaning that crop farming was already underway. But the spectrum of animal bones in the earliest parts of this layer reflects the hunting of a wide variety of wild animals, including hares, tortoises, and fish, along with larger animals such as goats, wild cattle, deer, and sheep. The most abundant large animal was sheep, although they represented less than half the total animals. So there were, you know, there was more variety, but then quite a lot of sheep. Okay. Moreover... The sheep bones from these early levels were clearly those of wild animals, which can be distinguished from domesticated animals by their larger size and the distribution of ages and sexes. So if you have a wild herd that's not managed by humans, you tend to have more older animals and roughly equal numbers of males and females. If the herd is being managed, yeah, we get in there and we we alter it to what we want. So at this site, beginning around 10,200 years ago, the proportions Mm -hmm. of wild animals shifts. The hunting of smaller animals appears to fall off to insignificant numbers, while the percentage of sheep, which outnumber goats by three to one, steadily increases. By about 9,500 years ago, sheep represented nearly 90% of all animals at the site. Moreover, the researchers say that the age and sex patterns of the bones indicate active management, so herding. So, so pigs. <laughs> we're gonna we're yeah. gonna round this out with piggies. So the pig domestication story, kind of like dogs, has two distinct branches or chapters, if it's a story. Metaphors. Of all the suid forms, so there are several, um, only Sus scrofa or the wild boar has been domesticated. And so that process took place independently in two different locations around nine or ten thousand years ago in eastern Anatolia and central China. In Southwest Asia, pigs were part of a suite of plants and animals that were part of the the whole domestication package that you can sign up for. It's a subscription service. Along the northern part of the Euphrates River about 10,000 years ago. The earliest domestic pigs in Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, are found in the same sites as domestic cattle in what is today southwestern Turkey about 7,500 years ago. And in case you're keen on chronology, that is during the late, early, pre-pottery, <laughs> Neolithic B period. This is God. like that that location that I, where the Kentucky coffee tree grows, where it's in like the, the lower, lower, upper south. Lower, upper, middle <laughs> south. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In China, the earliest domesticated pigs date to 6600 BCE at the Neolithic Jiahu site. I got it that time. It's too many times. (laughs) Jiahu is in east central China between the Yellow and Yangtze rivers and domestic pigs were found associated with the Sishan or Peligang culture, which was around from 6600 to 6200 BCE. In earlier layers, there's only wild boar bones. And so then gradually we see changes in the shape of the pig's bones, especially in their skulls, that suggest that they are being domesticated, like deliberately bred. What happens to their skulls? Why? Why does this happen? It comes along with choosing traits that are desirable. So in boars, you are trying to, you're going for less 
uh, attacky. Less killy. Yeah, that's right. Less okay. killy. And also less able, like if the, even if they are aggressive towards humans, less able to do damage. So what you see is reduction in size of teeth. The face is shorter. So there's, first of all, there's fewer teeth. The males tend to have much smaller tusks or no tusks at all. And in general, the pigs themselves are a little more docile. Those are like intentional changes where you want them to be less capable of like gutting you. Well, I think what was selected for in general was docility. So the, the morphological changes that happen, like, so those, it sounds Mm -hmm. like that, that kind of was like part of what you wanted is it's, but, but there are like, but aren't aren't there like side effects that, that come with it that aren't necessarily what, we want aren't there things that is are you talking about that elsewhere in this episode or can we talk about it no now? we've talked I, about it briefly um the the best example i can think of is dogs the you know the um siberian fox experiments so foxes aren't dogs they're a different kind of canid but this russian guy did experiments with siberian foxes starting in the 60s and like they're possibly still doing them today still doing that today i forget it was through the 90s for sure but they basically worked with populations of siberian foxes and selected the ones who showed less aggression towards keepers so they kept them in pens and they would approach them like with gloves and stuff and the foxes that either sort of backed away and were not like snapping but just sort of showing wariness were the ones that were selected to breed. And so they gradually did that. And over the course of just a few generations, I think it was like three or four, there started to be along with the trait of docility and like interested in being interested in being friends with people. Yeah. There were physical traits that weren't directly selected for, but that showed up as hallmarks of domestication. And so that includes patchy fur. So rather than, yeah, a single color, they would have like blotches of white on them or just sort of variegated coats. Um, their tails would wag. Wild foxes don't wag their tails, but um, these these domesticated foxes started being more communicative to humans. Um, their ears went from being straight up to floppy, oh. you know, floppy ears. Um, and so like it's traits like that that we see in dogs that yeah. are different. If you picture a wolf and you picture a Labrador, yeah. right? You've got... The sweet dopey version of a wolf. Yeah. Really. So there are deliberately selected traits. And then there are some traits that just also happen because of because those genes affect multiple parts of an animal's physiology. Yeah. I'm going to wrap up on pigs with a quote from a Thought Co. article. I think you'll get it. I hope you'll get as much of a kick out of this, Amber, as I did. Beginning with the first domestication, pigs became the main domestic animal in China. Pig sacrifice and pig human interments buried Pigs buried with humans are in evidence by the mid sixth millennium like BCE. Human burial. They're not pig, pig humans. It's like a turducken. Oh God, no. <laughs> like turducken that's not, burial. No, that's absolutely not what's happening. These are pigs buried with people. Not not, in not them. inside them. Okay. Nope. Cool. The modern Mandarin character for home or family consists of a pig in a house. The earliest representation of this character was found inscribed on a bronze pot dated to the Shang period, which is uh, 1600 to 1100 BCE. End quote. Isn't that delightful? Big house. house. Oh, that's great. That's nice. Yeah. So for more about the process of domestication and what skeletal evidence for domestication looks like, you can check out episode 59, Fauna with Fauna, uh, over at thedirtpod.com. But for now, let's take a quick break for ads and then we'll branch out a little bit from the farm. 
It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. And we're back. We've caught up with dogs. So it's only fair that we catch up with cats, especially since a genetic study from 2017 shows that cats have been unnecessarily complicating things for millennia. So there are lots and lots of cat mummies from Egyptian burials. Amber, I have a terrible story for you. And please read this roller coaster of a paragraph from the Liverpool Museum's website. And also everyone listening, I'm so sorry. God. Okay, so I'm quoting. Oh God, I'm quoting. Uh, um, on the 10th of February, 1890, an estimated 180,000 mummified cats weighing 19.5 tons in total. Thank you, Anna, for the, yeah. the, the clarification. Not each. Um, were sold at auction at the docks in Liverpool. Almost all were crushed and spread on fields like manure, but a few were saved and remained in the World Museum. <laughs> um, they were discovered the previous year at the site of Speos Artemidos in Middle Egypt when a farmer fell through a hole into a catacomb completely filled with cat mummies. <laughs> a catacomb. Yep. This so when this so, when this and that quote that that quote ends there. The, okay, that ends it. But like when that sentence began, um, of there being like a boat full of mummified like one hundred eighty thousand mummified yeah. cats, I was like, was Cat Dracula on this boat that it just like he it was just not arrived like on the docks. That Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola is a great film. I'm just putting that out there. This is one thing I will not accept feedback on. Okay. Um, a genetic study of more than 200 ancient cats suggests that even if the animals were domesticated outside Egypt, it was the Egyptians who turned them into the lovable furballs we know today. 
Um, it's even possible they domesticated cats a second time. They just loved him so much. They just wanted to do it again. <laughs> kind of. Um, the oldest known cat burial, like buried with a person, presumably as a pet and also not in a person, um, is from. Why would that be the decision? <laughs> just I spooktober is coming up and I just thought, like, are we burying cats in people? I'm going to look into it. So this comes from 9,500 years ago on Cyprus, in Cyprus. Um, so cats, some of them anyway, might have already been our little pals before they showed up in ancient Egypt. Uh, the genetic study showed three different branches of cat families uh, based on mitochondrial DNA. So mom's sort of like, your mom? Your mom sent you this? Not my mom. Cat no. mom. A quoting from an article in Science Magazine. <laughs> Most of the Egyptian cat mummies sport a different Libica. Different Libica subtype, type C for cat, which first appears mm -hmm. in the team samples around 800 BCE. Uh, it's possible that the type C cat could have been living in Egypt much earlier. The early graveyard study didn't yield any usable DNA. Cats with this genetic signature appear to have been incredibly popular. Oh. Um, I had a lot of signatures in their yearbooks. By the 5th century CE... Genetically, yes. By the 5th century CE, cat era, they spread through mm -hmm. Europe and the Mediterranean. And during the 1st millennium CE, they came to outnumber type A cats 2 to 1 in places like Western They were just much Europe. more chill. Look. No, type A doesn't mean what it means for people. <laughs> it's just a, a different haplotype genetic, genetic line of cats. <laughs> Um, the ancient Egyptians may have been responsible for this popularity. Um, Carlos Driscoll is quoted saying, the Egyptians were the first people to have the resources to do everything bigger and better. Um, I don't know if they were the first people, Carlos, but uh, and sure. So Driscoll uh, is the World Wildlife Fund Chair in Conservation Genetics at the Wildlife Institute in India in Dehradun, um, who led the 2007 mm -hmm. study. Uh, World Wildlife Fund... Mm, the mm -hmm. cold brew of colonialism. It's brewed strong. That that ability may have extended to breeding cats. As the Egyptians bred more and more felines, they likely would have selected for the ones that were easiest to have around. We've all known a cat that wasn't easy to have around. <laughs> Um, yep. More social and less territorial than their predecessors. Driscoll says, quote, they turbocharged the tameness process, end quote. I just wanted to include that last <laughs> bit because like, sure. Just that. So yeah. you're, you're, so Izzy is like turbo tamed and that's why she sleeps in yeah. the bag of my laundry paper. basket. Oh. oh yeah, that too. <laughs> She'll just my little garbage cat. And now two short domestication stories and one is a ghost story. Sort of. <sighs> Mm -hmm. Yes. Spooktober is coming. Yeah. It's not the kind of ghost story you're thinking. No. So, Guanacos. Guanacos what? are camelids. Who? Guana Guanacos. The little guy I sent you yesterday that looks like an alpaca. Oh. Oh, they have a different name that I made a pun on. Vicuña? Oh, more like Vicuña. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the joke you made. That sure is that sure is something you said. So, yeah. so guanacos are camelids. 
closely related to llamas. And they look like llamas and alpacas. They're cute and fluffy. Uh, they were domesticated by people living in what is today South America because they're adaptable to lots of different conditions and environments across the Andes range. And the article I read referred to them as extremely plastic, which is very funny. It's just like, oh, it's a, like- an, a nonsense jargony way. Well, not nonsense, but it's like jargony for no reason to say they're adaptable. It also makes it sound like they like they're little hate, action figures. Like, hate them for like um, subscribing oh, to like, for certain being like really... norms of beauty. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, in this case, it means adaptable. Okay. Um, they're also some of the most abundant prey animals in the area. Oh. So they were definitely food before they were farmed. For everybody. Yeah. Well, abundant it's going to get worse. Prey animals. Unfortunately, with the Spanish conquest, llamas, alpacas, vicuñas, and guanacos were slaughtered en masse. <sighs> they were just. Well, to, no to destabilize the no oh oh that's like right. to create oh. yeah food insecurity like, yeah, yeah exactly so this resulted in a big decrease in genetic diversity which is a bottleneck yeah. event. so when you wipe out a big old chunk of a population there's only a little bit of that gene pool left to work with so you're you're getting rid of a lot of diversity so a DNA study published in 2021 suggests that there used to be a Wanaco population in South America whose genes once contributed to the overall genome, but who are no longer represented. So that is a ghost population of Wanaco. So that was the ghost story. And now a story about chickens. Oh, that could yeah. also be scary. Could be. So scientists, including Charles Darwin, so the idea has been here for a while, have argued that chicken domestication traces back to the Indus Valley in what is now Pakistan and Western India. So that's where the wild red jungle fowl are from. Um, Their taxonomic name is Gallus Gallus. That is exactly the same as it's chicken. Mm -hmm. Others insist that early cultures in northern China, southwest China or southeast Asia were the first to breed these birds. So I'm going to quote from the Smithsonian from an article in 2014. Quote, researchers from China, Germany, and the United Kingdom say that northern China is home to the world's earliest known chicken domestication site, based on their work sequencing genes from the oldest available chicken bones. Today, northern China is a fairly dry place that plummets into Siberian temperatures in the winter. Siberian temperatures? Does that mean cold? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, uh, distinctly chilly. Thousands of years ago, however, it was balmy enough to host the jungle fowl that scientists think gave rise to domesticated chickens. The researchers examined 39 bird bones. Okay, so not like an N of, you know, it's not a huge number. Uh, recovered from three archaeological sites along the Yellow River in northern China and one site in eastern China. The remains were found alongside charcoal and bones from other animals, including pigs, Dogs, and in one case, tigers and Chinese alligators. I'm sorry. What? The who? Chinese alligators? There are alligators in China? Yes. The bones range in age from 2300 to 10,500 years old, which the scientists determined using radiocarbon dating. Prior to this study, the oldest chicken sequences came from birds that lived around 4,000 years ago. End quote. But wait! There's a twist! A bombshell! An eggshell? Yes. So I found this in the abstract of a 2020 paper published in Nature. Quote, Increasingly, multiple lines of evidence suggest that many of the archaeological bird remains underlying this northern origins hypothesis have been misidentified. Here, we analyze the mitochondrial DNA of some of the earliest purported chickens from the Dadiwan site in northern China and conclude that they are pheasants. Uh, 
Phasianus Colchius. Curiously, stable isotope values from the same birds reveal that their diet was heavy in agricultural products, namely millet, meaning that they lived adjacent to or among some of the earliest farming communities in East Asia. They were pheasants the whole time. So they were pheasants. Not chickens. They weren't chickens. Yeah. They weren't those wild jungle fowl. They were, at least the earliest known, are pheasants. So stable isotope values. So like, mm-hmm. do we think that they were fed? Yes, so they probably. were like they were either fed or or allowed to hang around the millet fields to, to eat bugs, and they probably also okay. ate millet when it you know when it ripened. Okay. So while we all recover from that revelation, that let's take exciting. one more quick ad break. Were you pheasantly surprised? We have, I was pheasantly surprised. Do we have okay? Um, also, every time um, I think about animal domestication and chickens, I think of. Um, when I was in the field, when I was in Sharjah, we went to the Sharjah Archaeological Museum and there are these little dioramas of sites. And there's one that, if I remember correctly, it's like a a late, like an Iron Age 3 site. So it's like around the beginning of the common era. And, mm-hmm. um, and there are like little chickens in the diorama. And my professor was just like, I don't know why they put the chickens in there. It's inaccurate. <laughs> Just like he had like such like, I mean, like pardon the phrase, but he had such beef with the chickens in this diorama that I always think about it. And so I know when chickens weren't in the, in Southeastern Arabia. <laughs> where, and where and they, they weren't. Yeah. They absolutely weren't. I think it was in Maleha. I like, they absolutely are not at Maleha in Sarja. <laughs> okay. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back! Um, and so Anna, when Anna and I were discussing this episode um, in, in the Anna would text me and be like, what else do you want to talk about? Me being like, I don't know anything. Um, I made a rather <laughs> emphatic request that I get to learn about unconventional domestic hits uh, because I sort of guessed that this is a process that like that like big science thought that they had figured out like what the process was and that there are. Uh, human animal relationships that aren't deemed domestication. Like it was something that sort of like having like have th- th- that is a case of there being like normative patterns and, <laughs> and like anything mm-hmm. that falls outside like a of trend. normative like, pattern. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, and just sort of like, and, and that could be used to say that some groups were like incapable or never got around to like domesticating or things like that. Um, so, I, I thought like maybe species that one wouldn't necessarily equate with husbandry that were domesticated um, or populations using unusual or just sort of like non normative domestication strategies. Yeah. Um, because I, yeah. I, I figured that this is something that we talk about because you talk about it like when you talk about like the Neolithic revolution and you talk about kind of 
like these these ideas that that came about during a time when archaeology was all about like diffusion and it's like when you yeah you kind of have to have it come from one place yeah and and it's the stuff that you learn like in your first archaeology class and then you spend the rest of your archaeological career and like like 15 years later you're like wait a dang minute yeah yeah you're just like oh no Hmm. oh no i yeah Mm. Yeah, like I did a bias. <laughs> I'm yeah. receiving new information um, and I So have that's to what I was kind of hoping for. I wanted to hear yeah. about uh, cuz cuz it like like is there an analog to how it was thought that like agriculture like didn't happen in South America or it did, didn't until way later and then it turns out And then we look out in the like, Amazon. The Amazon mm-hmm. has been farmed oh. for millennia. And so like mm-hmm. is there something like that for aminals yes so um let me welcome to the stage lumaca romana a snail (laughs) as a roman snail (laughs) so these little guys were farmed so snail farming is helica culture (laughs) yeah helica culture um, you probably pronounced Helissa culture now, but, eh. but so this is in the region around Tarquinia, um, in central Italy. This was Etruscan territory before it was Roman. Um, but there's nothing to suggest that the, uh, the Etruscans farmed any invertebrates <laughs> or um, anything for that matter. I don't know what they, they farmed. They, they did the grapes, they did the bees. Oh yeah. Remember, they had agriculture. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. They did the bees. So snail farming was described by Fulvius Lupinus in 49 BCE. There's nothing else going on then. Um, Mm. And um, mentioned by uh, Marcus Terentius Vero in De Re Rustica 3. So uh, volume three of country stuff. Uh, the snails were plumped up for human consumption on a diet of spelt, so grain, and aromatic herbs. So, yeah, they're like pre-flavored. Oh, gosh. People usually <laughs> raise snails in pens near their houses, and these pens were called cochlea. Yeah, so I clicked on the, because cochlea was linked in the Wikipedia article and, where and I cochlea found some of this. snail. It does. And so, but I wanted to see if there was more information about the pen. Like, was the pen just named after snail or was it in the shape of it? Anyway, what? I clicked on the link. It took me to Wikipedia in Latin, oh, which is a thing so that exists. So Vicky, don't do that. Don't click that. Vicky, yeah. Du- Wikipedia. Uh, V-I-C-I-pedia. Yeah. Wikipedia. Oh, that's it. I thought you were going to teach me something that you learned on... No, there was nothing to learn. It was an article about snails that was about four sentences long and in Latin. It- <laughs> Helping no one. Who is that for? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the insect world in general isn't something that we think of right away when we think of domestication. Um, I would like to continue not thinking of it when I think of domestication, but I guess that's going to change as I continue. Too bad. If you consider the actual definition of the word, it's when humans exert reproductive control over a species with genetic change as a result. So as we've changed the environment that we occupy through agriculture and later through industry um, and now through the web and 
we've also had an effect on the insect population as a as a knock on effect. Um, but there are a couple insect species on which humans have focused deliberate efforts at artificial selection: silkworms and honeybees. Probably also others, but these are the like two big ones that I could think of. Silkworms, the butterball turkeys of the insect world. Um, this is something that Anna has pulled from a chapter in an edited volume called Animal Domestication. Uh, the title is chapter in the, the chapter is by Thomas Lecoq and the title is Insects, the Disregarded Domestication Histories. Cool. Cool. The silkworm life cycle. Uh, currently in modern production, is strongly controlled by humans in indoor facilities with controlled environmental conditions. New eggs are incubated in rearing facilities where their hatching can be scheduled and synchronized by humans through chemical treatments and manipulating the amount of light and heat exposure. This sounds like Brave New World. Uh, I know. It's like, you get to hatch now. The newly hatched caterpillars are transferred to a rearing tray and fed by humans with mulberry leaves. After several molts, caterpillars climb on support structures and spin their silken cocoons. Anna is acting out each step of this process on Zoom. Um, Then cocoons are collected and specimens are killed before metamorphosis destroys their silk. Some Because they produce an enzyme that like melts it. Remember when we talked about the silkworm gnocchi? Yeah. Mm. I didn't realize that. I was just thinking about the delicious... Gnocchi. Um, <laughs> so some cocoons are allowed to survive in order to produce adults for breeding. In contrast to closely related wild moth species that fly for reproduction or evasion from predators, um, B. mori adults are not capable of functional flight due to their too big, heavy body and their small wings. Oh. Therefore, B. mori completely relies on human assistance in finding a mate and a laying support. Gosh. Yeah, so right at the top of the episode when you said, like, these are species that we've made to some extent yeah. dependent on people. Bombyx mori, oh. at least the the ones that are used in silk farming, um, <laughs> can't fly. And then we got bees. Bees! <laughs> Humans began harvesting wax and honey from honeybee colonies at least 9,000 years ago from wild nests. Um, As human populations became larger and sedentary, honey supply no longer matched demand. Just a bunch of Winnie the Poohs like, I want honey. People soon realized that providing hives to honeybees made it easier to harvest their honey and wax. At the beginnings of beekeeping, the beginnings, uh, honeybees Hmm. were not bred so much as kept. Uh, humans provided rudimentary containers, often destroyed during honey harvesting, which also makes them sound like Winnie the Pooh. So we're like, I gotta get my honey. <laughs> Not that you have to like crack <sighs> it open to get it. <laughs> um, and get your head hope, stuck. Oh, and hope that wild bee colonies would take up residence without later swarming. So, you know, leaving. Like not mm-hmm. swarming you, not being like. No, just choosing a new no, home. Just like, yeah, but going en masse to another place. Bye. Um, so they, they, um, they, over time, humans increased their control on bees by developing swarming control devices, um, as in the queen excluder. Who's she? 
That's me. Uh, <laughs> you are the queen excluder. Uh, we stand a queen excluder. Um, no, in this case, it was the the discovery that sequestering, like identifying and sequestering the queen um, yeah. made the rest of the hive much more docile and less likely to leave. So, so taking a hostage. Yeah. The, the hive will go where their queen is. And so uh, listeners may know, I'm not sure if I talked about this, but I wrote a children's book and it's about, it's, it's not coming out for a while, but it's about um, interesting competitions all over the world and throughout history. And one of them is how many bees can you wear on your body? And one of the ways that you do that is you take a little queen in a cage and you hang it from yourself. And then all of the bees swarm around you and just land on you. And then they weigh you. And then, not the bees, they, the judge weighs you and estimates how many pounds of bees you have on your body. That's a thing that people do. But that's what a queen excluder is. It's like a little a little cage for a single okay. queen bee. Um, also, reproduction control, um, e.g. artificial insemination. What? I don't know how that works. I don't. With like a tiny... I don't think it's internal. Little IUDs and bees. IUBs. IUBs. Um, and selective breeding programs. This yeah. is wild to me. It's not. It's yeah. domesticated. But this is it's very <laughs> fascinating. Good. So that was, did that satisfy your, your need for non-normative Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that is helping me figure out, like, I mean, these are... Like these are creatures that don't have bones. And so this helps me kind of break down the the idea of what happens to them. Um, yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, there's that. But then also there's a sort of intermediate category of animals that we oh, maybe manage. Vertebrates and vertebrates. And it was just like, oh no. Uh, cartilaginous fish. I don't know. Um, there are animals that we manage and harvest, but I wouldn't call them domesticated, like oysters. Like you can be an oyster farmer, but that doesn't mean you're selectively breeding oysters. You're just keeping oysters in a place where you can easily get to them yeah. and harvest them. So that's not domestication, but that there is that sort of nebulous management, keeping things in, in yeah. manageable areas. So there's that, but that's that's sort of separate here. Also, can you imagine being a snail farmer in the snail fields with your Calypso, your trusty snail hound, herding snails? She would not be a good snail hound. One time she stepped on a, a slug and she flipped over on her back and just like shook her paw at me until I got it off. She was like, ew. <laughs> like she just... hasn't been selectively bred for snail farming. No. Okay, I've got, I've got one more example that isn't domestication, but it is animals and humans in a working relationship. So they are co-workers. Oh, colleagues. 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 Ha ha ha. That'll make sense in a second. No, I figured the it Kazakh out. people <laughs> who have traditionally occupied the area where modern day Russia, China, Mongolia, and Kazakhstan all come together, use golden eagles to hunt. These eagles are not tame. And they are not bred by the Kazakh hunters, but they are trained and they typically have a close bond with their hunters. Female eagles are preferred. Them? Meet them on like they, Craigslist? They get, no, they go get them from nests. They go eagle nap. Okay. I thought yeah. I was just like, what? You just like. You put up a sign. 
there's eagle a, land here. I saw a bald eagle here the other day. We've got bald eagles here. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we I'm got them here go. too. That's cool. Uh, yeah, it was this big, majestic, big, majestic guy. I'm going to go gonna go hang out with him and get him to hunt. Tell me more. Uh, it might have been a majestic gal because female eagles are preferred. They're bigger than males. So in most raptor species, uh, yeah. bird, birds of prey, uh, the females are bigger. Also, listeners, if you're curious and you don't know this already, go look up a YouTube video for what an eagle sounds like. Because in movies, when you see an, a majestic eagle flying and it goes, Meh! that is the call of a red-tailed hawk. I mean, better than that. Yeah. But you know what I mean, right? That's a red-tailed I, hawk. I know what a red-tailed hawk sounds like. Yeah. Eagles um, have just really cute little warbly chirps. It's not majestic, but it is adorable. No. So the female eagles are preferred by the hunters and the hunters feed them and nurture them for several years and then release them. So that means that there are healthy females released back into the wild population, which is good for biodiversity. So the Kazakhs have been using eagles to, for hunting for thousands of years. We and know this because they're like, they go back to normal. They like know how to eagle. Yeah. Because part of the training, like basically they're just, they just have a human friend and they just, hunt the way they normally would hunt but they are trained to sort of wait when they kill something and not just immediately start eating it so that the hunter can get get to it and then it, the, he'll feed the bird and then you know take the skin or whatever you know whatever they want the hunted animal for um, typically like foxes and stuff or what they hunt um so we know that that falconry has been part of Kazakh tradition for thousands of years because there are petroglyphs from the Bronze Age, so between 3000 and 2000 BCE, that refer to falconry, falconry so that they're drawings of people hunting with birds. As a later example, Marco Polo mentioned eagle hunting with Genghis Khan's grandson in the 1100s. Um, so eagle hunters or burkitschi, burkitschi? wear fur coats to stay warm in sub-zero temperatures and their golden eagles can zoom after prey at speeds up to 200 miles per hour. What? Well, they dive. They're not flying that fast. They fly up really high and mm -hmm. they dive and they turn into little feathery missiles. I say little. These are like Golden eagles two are feet very tall. big. They're very um, big. Remember, remember... Roy Chapman Andrews. There we go. The guy who oh, was the yes, inspiration yes, 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 yes. for, for Wendell for, Phillips. Went to Mongolia. Uh, and and there was like, that bird. photo of him with like, right. the golden eagle. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's like, so its big. wingspan is bigger than him. Yeah. It's so big. And, and the, the article yes, okay, is like, I do remember. It's like, oh, he got a divorce. Here's an eagle. <laughs> and like, that's, yeah, that was a weird take. Roy Chapman Andrews. Um, there we go. Thank you. Just, okay. So fast eagles, 200 miles per hour. Yeah. While the tradition is continued as a matter of pride and sort of identity, cultural identity, it also provides a source of revenue since tourists pay to go and see the birds and hunters in action. There is even a golden eagle festival during which the best of the best compete in a variety of divisions to demonstrate their eagle's speed, agility, and accuracy. The idea do they, of an do they go around eagle little... is terrifying. They hit little eagle slaloms. Yeah. I think they sort of have the equivalent of that. Like they have to catch a prey, like catch a prey, catch a lure that's on okay. a string that's being like yeah. whipped around and they have to, yeah, things like huh. that. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. And so 
while those eagles may bond with their captors, they are not domesticated. Most of the birds are released when they're around five to six years old. So it is a not domestication, but taming, but then also not taming relationship. I thought that was really interesting. I think it's, I think it's unique kind of among human animal relationships because I couldn't think of any other animal necessarily that humans sort of work with and then return to the wild. What about um, those birds that get the honey? Yeah. Or honey, honey guide, sorry, honey, honey guide birds. They are wild. They have just figured out how to get humans to open a nest for them. So they domesticated us. Or at least trained us. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they will, the, the people in that area, you know, however many thousands of years ago, noticed that the honey guide would sing a very particular song or like do things to get them to notice it. Mm hmm. And then would fly over to a, a tree trunk and be like, hey, hey, oh, that's um, that's what my that's what my parents dog does with her squeaky monster. She'll yeah, try to stares get your at attention it and then go over to the fridge and be like, there's a monster. Up I there. know it's up there. <laughs> I know it's up there. <laughs> Release it. Give it to me. Yeah. And so finally. I wanted to wrap up this episode with just a couple of thoughts about humans, because I did raise the question, are humans domesticated? And that's a question I see pretty often when I'm looking into domestication, which is more than the average person does, probably. <laughs> um, but also, it's seized on by a lot of people who are sort of anti things like big farm and big pharma, just like the idea of like, we humans are becoming soft, like it's the real paleo only mm -hmm. meat eater diet, like mm -hmm. that kind mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. it has a little, a little mm -hmm. hint of that kind of mm -hmm. flavor. I'm getting those base notes here. Um, top notes of, <laughs> yeah, I was like top notes of, of eco-fascism. Yeah. In the sense that we humans have mostly become dependent on a fundamentally altered environment yeah, we've basically, we, we've done to ourselves what we did to like sheep that can't survive in the wild without being shorn because so. otherwise they, they will just, their hair will grow and grow and grow. And that's not ideal. So we've, we've really fundamentally changed our, the way that we subsist for the most part, barring some sort of traditional lifestyle hunter-gatherer communities. And so most of us, like if if the show Naked and Afraid or like Survivor is any indication, most of us could be sort of thrown back into the wild and would do very poorly. Um, in some ways... Because our, we would go to make friends? Yeah, you can't be there to make friends. <laughs> okay. In, so in some ways, um, our morphology, especially with regards to our skull and jaw has undergone changes that are similar to what happens to other mammals when they are domesticated. So if you yeah, look at we don't have very tusks. early, we don't have tusks anymore. Um, and I mean, we d haven't had them for like 11,000 years. I mean, 11 million years, but sorry, not 11. I'm having trouble with decimal places today. 11 million years. Um, and I wouldn't call them tusks. <laughs> we haven't had enlarged canines for a while. But um, the agricultural diet has changed the shape of our faces. In general, a cooked diet has probably affected the shape of our faces. And if you look at really early, even Homo sapiens, but if you look earlier than that, you will see that the shape of the face 
is changed. We have flatter foreheads. We have rounder skulls. In general, we have sort of babified, babified features, we've, we've which been, is something. We've been babified. We're just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Babes. Uh, no, in the sense of like, uh, it, it's called neoteny or retaining characteristics yeah. of, of the young of, of a certain. Yeah. So like, you know, there's a reason that a Labrador looks sweeter to us than a wolf they're both beautiful animals, but like a Labrador, and we see it baby. and we go, no, yeah. one is baby and yeah. must be held upside down. Yeah. Um, and and told that it is baby. <laughs> you are baby. Yeah, That is the only reason I work out so much. So I can pick up every dog <laughs> like a baby. <laughs> so there's, there's that. There are those two aspects where like, yeah, okay. If you wanted to really kind of stretch the term domestication, we have slightly domesticated ourselves. Is but there a reason to think about this other than having like sort of harmful rhetoric? Is there sort of like, huh? Is it worth it? Fascism. Like, is that like the two options here of just like, I think, I think it's curiosity and fascism. Yeah. 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 Um, because ultimately domestication is reproductive control. And yeah. so, uh, despite, decisions made by the supreme court um reproductive control over humans is eugenics that so, is like yikes. the whole thing that's the whole thing that's and breeding people that that does come down to holding a position that some people should not be alive um and it's everything from like people with um like congenital disabilities to poor people like just sort of this whole like yeah this this whole continuum of of things yeah. that are are undesirable traits um and so yeah i can't i can't think of anything that where this is good because even like no. even the like sort of scientific curiosity kind of crispr stuff very quickly like is like a spring heads down that springboard road yeah. into like for sure eugenics and and population control which also means like elimination of part of the population. Yeah. Culling or at least allowing certain traits to die out. Yeah. Via denial of reproduction. Yeah, exactly. So I just, in the interest of bringing up things for our listeners to think critically about when you, when you (laughs) see anything talking about, humans being domesticated or humans domesticating ourselves or just sort of hints of that. A lot of times those, that, that those terms won't be used explicitly, but you can kind of see that that's happening. Just take a moment and just be like, you know, is this harmful? Basically. I, um, spent a lot of time looking at things and saying, it's like, I have questions like, who is this for? And like, yeah. Is anybody getting anything out of this? And and sort of like, yeah. like And should this, they? Yeah. <laughs> need, need we get anything out of this? Um, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Well, yeah. yeah. Thank you for this. I learned so much. Thank you. And I didn't even, I wasn't even the guy that was like, let me pitch this. It's problematic. <laughs> I just sort of like, I'm going to do a thought experiment and then I'm going to tell you it's bad. Um, no, I learned that. from that you. That's, I just, you learned yeah. it from watching me. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll be back in your ears with more content soon.
Until then, you can find other episodes of ours on the, the podcast app of your choice. And then we'll be in your ears with old content. Um, so all mm-hmm. of our back episodes, our resources for educators, our information about who we are and what we do, and more is over at thedirtpod.com. And also... Uh, Thank you to everyone. Who, yeah, thanks everybody who submitted um, applications for the inaugural Pass the Mic grant competition. So we're so excited that people applied. We're we so were sort ex- of afraid that no one would come to this party. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I just specifically need one. Amber. Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, we had uh, wonderful applicants, and and we'll get back to to you. Well, yeah, soon we're we're, we're getting as soon there. As we can. And so thanks also to everyone who has. Um, gone above and beyond to support it so far and we're really excited that it's happening yeah we're doing it it's happening yeah and it's happening thanks to in in no small part our patrons over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and also donors and people who sponsor episodes so you can find out more about that on our website as well and merch i just did a new merch design it's real cute Amber put me on blast last week for having I really few designs with our. Did not perceive I know. that to have gone the way you did, where I just was like, "No, no, no, would be cool if, if I didn't take it as a the the, brand, the branded materials." <laughs> no, I didn't take it as a criticism, but I did go, "Oh yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I should like, do that." Should like a big big part of marketing is telling people what you're trying to sell. <laughs> I mean, you know. Despite all appearances no, to the you're contrary, a, I'm you're not a actually true, a graphic designer. You're a true artist. You're just, um, but also <laughs> when you say in no small part, everything is paid for by our, our patrons, the, the episode sponsors and the merch purchasers. Like that's, that's what. Purchasers. Mm. No purchasers. <laughs> Gross. Uh, but yeah, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you can also find us on social media where we're occasionally present and amusing or interesting or maybe both. We're on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Thank you, everybody. We thank love you. you. Thank you, Anna. Goodbye. Thank you. I love you, Anna. You're welcome. I love you, too. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.